Supply chain's role in speeding the COVID-19 vaccines. Strategies for clearing West Coast ports. And the truck driver shortage reaches record highs. Pull up a chair and join us as the editors of DC Velocity discuss these stories, as well as news and supply chain trends on this week's Logistics Matters podcast. Hi, I'm Dave Maloney. I'm the Group Editorial Director at DC Velocity. Welcome. Logistics Matters is sponsored by Zebra Technologies. As demand increases, so does the cost to run legacy operations, leaving small and growing warehouses asking, how can I boost warehouse efficiency? The answer's in black and white. Automate your operations with digital solutions from Zebra Technologies. Zebra has tools tailored to meet your needs that will inspire inventory visibility drive prescriptive actions, and fuel data-driven performance to cut down costs. Get the answers at zebra.com slash the answer. That's zebra.com slash the answer. As usual, our DC Velocity senior editors Ben Ames and Victoria Kickham will be along to provide their insight into the top stories of this week. But to begin today, the search for a COVID-19 vaccine proved to be one of the most impressive scientific achievements of our lifetimes. Compressing the usual time frame for developing a vaccine to less than a year required a reliance on new technologies and vast amounts of resources. Dr. Yossi Sheffi, the MIT Professor of Engineering Systems and Director of the MIT Center for Transportation and Logistics, recently studied the speed of the COVID-19 vaccine development, and he's written a new book called A Shot in the Arm, How Science, Engineering, and Supply Chains Converged to Vaccinate the World. I spoke with Dr. Sheffy earlier this week. Here's our conversation. Welcome, Yossi. It's good to have you back with us on Logistics Matters. Thank you very much for having me. Yossi, you just completed a new book called A Shot in the Arm, in which you compare the race to find an effective vaccine against COVID-19 to the 1960s efforts to land a man on the moon. What similarities do you see there? Well, I actually said that it was more difficult to do the vaccine than landing a man of the moon, because landing a man of the moon, we had a small number of people that we had to send in a, a single rocket to, to one destination. Here we have to develop something that uh, normally would take 10 years. We did it in 10 months. And most importantly, we had to send it to billions of people. So I thought it would be, it was more difficult than uh, going to the moon. Yeah, that's an interesting analogy. And this effort to find a COVID-19 vaccine obviously required a large amount of teamwork and supply chain planning within it all to accomplish it. Just how massive was this effort? One side of it was the science. A lot of it, especially with the mRNA, was uh, based on scientific development the last 30 years, but very new development. Then we had over 130 companies that were developing vaccine, competing for the same raw material, as well as competing with all the companies that developed testing procedures. And then we had to distribute it to billions of people, the process that we are still in, where some of them even don't want to take it. So this kind of gives you an idea of the challenges and the magnitude of the challenge. And that distribution part of it varied quite a bit depending on the vaccine itself, where you have the, the, the Pfizer and the Moderna requiring ultra-low temperatures for distribution and others not quite so much. How did that affect the whole supply chain aspect of it? 
Well, it turned out it worked pretty well. Uh, we were worried about a lot ahead of time, but uh, companies like both Pfizer and Moderna were very well prepared. They had the special container, they had a dry ice, and it turns out there's enough places that have the, uh, the refrigerator and the freezer needed for this. So it, this was not a big deal. However, because it's not everywhere, the United States has been throwing out by now, I think, 13 million doses, just had to discard. And some other places also had, had to discard good doses because you have to uh, hold them only for a few hours after you open the package, basically. So it's still difficult. Uh, it is. From a supply chain standpoint, did we invent any kind of technologies to make this happen other than the specialized packaging? Was there anything done that was radical that we can learn from in this process? I think this entire process, what we learned from is the power of collaboration and cooperation between companies, between scientists, between supply chain providers, between retailers. I uh, document in in this book and in the previous book, how people under the, under the gun, so to speak, and all feeling they are working for an important task, work together. And as Eisenhower said, you can accomplish a, a lot if nobody cares who gets the credit. And this was the case when we accomplished a lot, as uh, all the companies that, not only the mRNA company, J&J, you know, the Russian companies, some of the Chinese companies, they all develop vaccines that some work better than others, but they all worked. So this was an amazing scientific accomplishment. And then get them into people. Of course, there are problems. Some countries use it as a political tool. Others were hoarding vaccines. But it's understandable, given the current uh, political climate. But all in all, it's working. Yeah. And thank goodness for that. You, you did mention about the importance of teams working together. And as you said, a number of the vaccines succeeded, but there were a lot of vaccine projects that did not succeed, that did not get out of the initial phase one or the initial testing and those sort of things. What can we learn for the future from some of those failures? Actually, the failure was a scientific failure. They didn't get the, they didn't get the formulation right. It's not like they have, this was not a specifically supply chain failure or process failure. One has to also understand that uh, this was much better than the usual chance of developing any new pharmaceutical. Uh, companies will develop, will invest hundreds of millions of dollars and then fail. It happens all the time. Uh, in this case, a large number of companies did succeed in fact. Of course, some failed, but the failure rate was less than usual in uh, new pharmaceutical development. So, and the amazing thing, the newest process, the mRNA process succeeded both by uh, BioNTech, which is the, the Pfizer uh, vaccine and the Moderna vaccine. And there are several newer vaccines that are being developed, developed all over the world. And we'll see how they work, but uh, enough vaccines work that, uh, that it's working. You mentioned in the book that you believe the success of this huge work in creating these new vaccines can provide a blueprint for tackling many other major problems facing our world. Can you elaborate on, on what you believe? Yes, this is this is important. I, looking at uh, everything that went to it, the started with Operation Warp Speed, the amount of money that the government put in, 
the approach of the government or funding several companies knowing that some of them will fail but some of them will succeed the the whole approach and and on top of it the engineering on top of the science the i talk in the book about the whole scale-up procedure the new way of developing factories the fact that companies like moderna were able to turn their lab into a factory uh, but it was by design already 10 years ago when they started they thought about it how they collected data in all kind of new ways all of these things and on top of it all the supply chain and all transportation distribution the warehousing that went into this was an amazing collaboration and so i think that the solution to large-scale problems like global warming water you know poverty inequality a lot of it has to do with the right technology the right collaboration and being able to basically save the world show us that we can do it that just the world can do it so i hope that uh, when politics doesn't play a major role and people as, as i said don't doesn't matter who gets the credit and the government understand that you have to lose some of the funding all of these approaches seem to me to point the way to how we can tackle for example global warming how we can develop technologies such as carbon capture and sequestration reducing the amount of carbon in the air not just reducing uh, emissions because this just reduces the rate of growth but taking carbon out there are um, ways to do it in the laboratory in, in various uh, labs and they need some of the not even the trillions of dollars but it's a few billions of dollars to make all this happen and if we get to the same mindset of okay it is real we need to solve it well the world has shown that it can do it so i am in that sense i'm optimistic that we show the way how can various companies governments uh, scientists engineers supply chain manager manufacturing all of them can work together and get something incredibly incredible done because this was incredible it was were there significant lessons learned on the supply chain side of things as well not so much in this in this case on more on the initial side before the vaccine were developed when companies were collaborating in order to uh, deal with the shortages let me give you one example quickly uh, we had shortage of monkeys shortage of ape you need monkeys in order to do the testing before you try it on humans and there were not enough monkeys china is responsible for 80 percent of monkeys export in the world and they stopped exporting them they wanted to keep them for the chinese manufacture so what companies did they realized that when you do the test you give some monkeys the vaccine whatever vaccine the company has and some monkeys you give placebos so what they did many many companies they share the placebos because it doesn't matter what you give of course each company gave its own uh, injection but the placebos are the same so they were able to compare and not, not that every company did not need its own placebo uh, of monkeys so this is an example a company found ingenious ways to collaborate and work together more of that teamwork that you talked about. I wanted to ask you, with the fast process that took place in finding this vaccine, it has led many people to have skepticism about 
the safety of the vaccines. And you've done a lot of research with this. So based on your research, how do you respond to these concerns about safety? Number one, everybody should read my book, not because I'm pushing the book particularly. Uh, it's cheap, get <laughs> almost no money from it. But uh, because, first of all, I showed that the science is 30, 35 years old. It's not new science. You know, there's a, you know, collaboration and people build one uh, one on top of another until we got to the point that we create a vaccine so quickly. We did the, the uh, phase one, phase two, phase three was done by the book, by all the companies, the FDA participation. I explained the process, I explained how it works. But the amazing thing to me is right now, the world already gave more than a billion vaccines. That's hundreds of millions of each one of these vaccines. And so we know that, yes, there are minuscule numbers that there are side effects, some of them severe. But you are talking about just in the United States, three quarters of a million people dead, just dead. How can you compare it to, yes, with the J&J &J vaccine, there were few of them died. But how you compare it to the number, to the you know, hundreds of thousands of people who die, who die from COVID. And by the way, dying is not, is, is not even all of it because people have what's called long COVID. There are millions of people who are now suffering for months and months from all kinds of symptoms of COVID. Some of them will stay for life. So when you compare unbelievable risk against a minuscule risk, you have to be realistic. By now, it was given to hundreds of millions of people. So just go ahead and get it. I agree. So lastly, where can listeners find your book, Yossi? The book is available on Amazon. Uh, on Amazon, you can get both the ebook and the physical book. On uh, Google, on Apple, and Barnes and Noble, you can get the ebook. And so again, I hope people will go out and get it. It's called uh, A Shot in the Arm How Science, Engineering, and Supply Chains Converge to Vaccinate the World. I hope you'll enjoy it. Thank you, Yossi. I, I'm sure they will. Again, it's called A Shot in the Arm and available at leading booksellers. We've been talking with Dr. Yossi Sheffi, the Professor of Engineering Systems and Director at the MIT Center for Transportation and Logistics. Thank you again, Yossi, for sharing your expertise. It's always good to have you with us. Thank you for having me, Dave. Goodbye. Now let's take a look at some of the other supply chain news from the week. Ben, you wrote this week about strategies that West Coast ports are deploying to clear up that container backlog we've been hearing so much about. What's being done? Yeah, that's right, Dave. We've been hearing for weeks now about those long delays at West Coast ports. Uh, there are piles of containers stored on the docks and uh, 70 or 80 loaded ships, the number varies, uh, lying at anchor off of California's coast, waiting their turn to come in and move even more cargo onto land. And all this comes, of course, as the economy is trying to rebound from those COVID closures and retailers are frantically trying to stock their shelves ahead of a peak season. So to clear up that jam, uh, about two weeks ago, the White House weighed in and the uh, Biden administration pushed the ports of Los Angeles and Long Beach in California to move to 24-7 operations to chip away at that pile. And this week, we heard about three additional ways that logistics partners are also trying to clear up that supply chain problem. So 
First of all, uh, last week, the city of Long Beach tried to address a slightly different part of the puzzle. Uh, they issued a temporary waiver of their rule that containers could only be stacked two units high while they're stored on land. So by allowing the boxes to be piled four or even five levels high, uh, that plan could help workers move more containers off the ships onto land, they said. Uh, second, on Monday, both those same ports, Long Beach and Los Angeles, said they would increase their pressure on companies to move the inventory off of those docks by assessing a surcharge on ocean carriers for import containers that dwell too long at the marine terminals. So the ports will soon charge carriers a daily fee. Um, it depends on whether it's a truck-bound container or a rail-bound container, but after a certain number of days, they start uh, fining them $100 a day per container. And third, uh, on Wednesday, the Port of Long Beach uh, announced a different plan, and that's to move many of those same containers, uh, again, trying to clear off the docks, in this case, by shifting them uh, to Utah, of all places. Uh, that's through a detail, um, a deal with the Utah Inland Port Authority and also Union Pacific Railroad, which, of course, would be the carrier. Uh, so that move is supposed to bring rapid relief uh, from all that port congestion uh, by optimizing the rail operations there uh, between the two states uh, so they could shift the containers um, from the dock to the rail and then to truck uh, to distribute them through the West. Yeah, well, we know it's been a big problem and those sound like some creative solutions, but do we know if they'll be effective? Well, it's early to tell. But so far, industry and analysts are uh, pretty skeptical. Basically, the reason is that you can't just speed up one part of the supply chain without accelerating all the other links, or else you'll just shift the traffic jam down the road. So uh, that's why Victoria, who's been uh, writing about uh, the subject as well, she'd reported about the plan to shift the ports to 24 hours a day work schedules. But some of the people that uh, she spoke to said the approach might provide some temporary relief, uh, but probably not a long-term fix. Likewise, uh, the idea of charging ocean carriers extra fees if they don't move containers off the dock faster really won't work in isolation. And that's according to a company called Container Exchange, they're a German firm that makes a cloud-based container logistics platform. So Container Exchange said that those detention fees would probably just impose an added burden, uh, likely just to be passed on by the sh uh, to the shippers by those ocean carriers. Uh, that's because, after all, uh, the ports are seeing record volume, so they weren't, you know, built for this much traffic. And uh, Container Exchange said that uh, the intermodal stakeholders, so that's the truckers and the rail operators that carry the containers, um, they're beyond the control of, of the um, shippers. So, you know, these charges to the carriers uh, will probably not increase trucking or rail supply. Um, and, and again, uh, it's just sort of a, a point solution to a problem that's more complex than that. Yeah. Well, the lack of trucks really seems to be a major part of the problem. And turning to you, Victoria, you wrote this week that it's not just a lack of available trucks, but also available drivers as well, as the driver shortage continues to get worse. What more can you tell us? Yeah, that's right. It's, it's all um, a, a part of what Ben was just talking about. So uh, this week, the American Trucking Associations, or ATA, released its uh, 2021 driver shortage update. And that showed that the trucking industry is short about 80,000 drivers this year. And as you say, you know, this echoes so many of the problems we've been seeing in the supply chain and really the overall economy. 
um, especially when it comes to the difficulty so many companies are having finding workers. So just a, a little bit of background. So ATA has been tracking what it terms an industry-wide driver shortage since 2005. Um, there is some disagreement in the industry about you know, using the term shortage because there are many underlying reasons for lack of drivers. Uh, many in the industry say you know, they often point to low driver retention and a high turnover as the main problem rather than a shortage of available workers. Um, nonetheless, there are certainly labor challenges out there right now for many companies, as we've discussed many times. So um, ATA's 80,000 figure is the difference between the number of drivers currently in the market and the optimal number of drivers based on freight demand. Um, and the group says it uses demographic driver data, population growth by age data, tractor counts, and projected economic and industry growth information to model and forecast um, the driver shortage. So 80,000 is a figure today, and the group says that's up from a high of 61,000 in 2018. The levels had fallen a bit in 2019 and began to climb again in 2020. Um, and they also say that this figure could double uh, by 2030 if the economic pressures we're seeing continue and if a host of industry challenges uh, persist. Yeah, well, what are those challenges and what can be done to alleviate them? Yeah, there are many, uh, you know, like like Ben was talking about, you know, the challenges in the supply chain in general, but just just a couple of things. Um, they include long time problems in, that the trucking industry had uh, has um, and one is lifestyle issues is one, for example, especially in the long haul sector where drivers away from home for long periods of time. Uh, that's not necessarily an attractive um, attribute for many potential candidates. Uh, pay has long been an issue, although um, ATA and other groups say that, you know, that's increased as carriers seek to attract more drivers, especially this year. Um, and there's also just a general difficulty the industry had uh, has had attracting younger workers and women. And the problem is those issues have combined with pandemic-related challenges that we've been talking about here for many months um, to really drive up the number of needed drivers. One other issue that's interesting um, that ATA mentioned is that the Federal Motor Carrier Safety Administration's drug and alcohol clearinghouse is also having an effect. And what this does is it removes drivers from the workforce who fail federally mandated drug testing. Um, in a press conference earlier this week discussing the, the driver shortage report, um, ATA's chief economist uh, said that many of those drivers are not even attempting the return to duty process that's part of the clearinghouse. So that's a problem as well. Uh, the clearinghouse is a program ATA and the industry in general supports, um, but nevertheless, it's, it's tightening driver supply. Um, that's just what's happening. In terms of solutions, I'll be quick and just give you a few. Um, there's a program tied to the pending infrastructure bill before Congress that would help recruit and train younger drivers, and it's called the Drive Safe Act. We've reported on, on this in the magazine many, many times. And that program actually aims to lift rest, um, age restrictions that prevent drivers from crossing state lines. Um, and there's several other aspects of it. And supporters say, you know, that will really help to expand the pool of available drivers. Another issue is just improving infrastructure in general. And this is aimed at really making it easier for truckers to do their jobs. Um, just a couple of quick examples. Uh, many in the industry point to a lack of truck parking spots nationwide. And this is a problem because it can often cause drivers to stop driving earlier than in the day than they need to, you know, so that they can secure a spot for the night. And that obviously means less time on the road. Another one is road congestion. And that limits drivers' ability to sort of safely and efficiently make deliveries. So improving the nation's roadways will go a long way toward increasing efficiency and again, keeping trucks moving 
rather than idling in traffic. And one last thing I'll mention is that um, you know ATA and others say that shippers um, can can make a difference too, in addition to sort of industry and government efforts, by working to improve turn times and keeping wait times to a minimum. That's another step that can sort of help keep trucks moving so they can haul more freight. So a combination of things, um, you know, industry efforts to improve working conditions, um, government efforts to improve infrastructure, and uh, a whole lot of things that need to happen so that this problem can be alleviated. Yeah, well, those are all very good strategies if they get deployed, let's, let's hope they help. Yes. Thanks, Victoria. You're welcome. We encourage listeners to go to dcvelocity.com for more on these and other supply chain stories. And check out the podcast notes section for some direct links on the topics that we discussed today. Thanks, Ben and Victoria, for sharing highlights from the news this week. Thank you, Dave. Good to be here. Yeah, thanks for having us. And again, our thanks to Dr. Yossi Sheffi of MIT for being our guest today. We welcome your comments on this topic and our other stories. You can email us at podcast at dcvelocity.com. We also encourage you to subscribe to Logistics Matters at your favorite podcast platform. Our new episodes are uploaded each Friday. And speaking of subscribing, this week we launched our new 11-part limited podcast series from CSCMP's Supply Chain Quarterly on the top 10 supply chain threats. It runs for 11 weeks. This week's was an introductory segment, and then the next 10 episodes will each address one of the threats our supply chains currently face. So search on your favorite podcast platform for the top 10 supply chain threats to subscribe. And a reminder, Logistics Matters is sponsored by Zebra Technologies. As demand increases, so does the cost to run legacy operations, leaving small and growing warehouses asking, how can I boost warehouse efficiency? The answer's in black and white. Automate your operations with digital solutions from Zebra Technologies. Zebra has tools tailored to meet your needs that will inspire inventory visibility, drive prescriptive actions, and fuel data-driven performance to cut down on costs. Get the answers at zebra.com slash the answer. That's zebra.com slash the answer. We'll be back again next week with another edition of Logistics Matters, when a guest from Gartner will show us how to look to building sustainable supply chains, what companies need to do if they want to reduce their greenhouse gas emissions. So be sure to join us. Until then, please stay safe and have a great week.